When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Hi and welcome back to another episode of The Lowdown with Brave Mama. It is Steph Thompson, your host here. And today I am so excited to be giving you something that we've never done before on the show. I'm going to be sharing a conversation I had with our very first male guest. I know this is women's health. I know this is our pelvic health space. But I think after a couple of minutes of listening, you're going to realize why I invited this man in particular to come and talk to us. His name is Dr. Ray Hodgson. He is a gynecologist, also a specialist pelvic organ prolapse surgeon here in Australia and also in Nepal. He's written a book called Heartbreak in the Himalayas, which shares his journey of how he came to be a surgeon in Nepal, helping women as young as in their early 20s with prolapse surgery. I read the book It is phenomenal and you're going to find out more about it throughout our conversation. But strap yourselves in because after all the years of meeting male urogynecologists, gynecologists, obstetricians, prolapse surgeons, the whole gamut, Dr. Ray has a particular way of explaining things and he's just full of heart. When he talks I really listen, and I think you two are going to get so much out of this conversation. I am not a patient of Dr. Ray. I have never actually met him in person. We only connected through me reading his book. And yes, I absolutely wanted to drive the nine hours from where I live to where he is to go and see him in desperation. Throughout the conversation, you're going to find out the reasons why I haven't done that yet, and Nevertheless, I think the connection that we have now made and all of the information he's sharing with you right here, right now, is probably what I would have brought to you had I seen him in person anyway. So I'm really grateful and thank you so much to Dr. Ray for coming on. Let's get into today's conversation. Welcome, Ray. It's really, really an honor to have you here. Thanks, Steph. It's an honor to be on your show. And And can I say something before you even start? I think what you're doing is wonderful for women's um, education and advocacy. And, uh, you know, this is such an important area, which has been overlooked for so long. And, And there's so much, there's so much out there on the internet, which is rubbish about all sorts of medical things. And we need some high quality, sensible sites like your podcast to to get across the proper messages. So thank you. Oh, bless. Talk about starting with a tearjerker. My gosh. (laughs) I must say, look, you know, when you just get a gut feeling that a particular episode is going to resonate with uh, practically all of your audience, 
This is one. This is the one. And I tell you why. I actually put an email out to our community and said, hey, listen, I'm having a chat with this amazing man. He's a surgeon for prolapse. Do you have your questions? And my phone just went ding, 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 ding. So (laughs) it's so needed. And you are also our very first male guest on the Lowdown with Brave Mama. So it's such an honor all around. Let's set the scene first of all. So I first found out about you through our producer, Dave Stokes, who, when I was writing my book and recording the audio book, he said, hey, I've met this doctor who I think you really need to connect with. And I thought, oh, okay, yeah, I think I'm in the right hands, but yep, sure. And then he gave me a link to your book. I want to start there if that's okay, because I purchased your book and I read it with tears coming down my face because what you do for the women around the world, especially in Nepal, is phenomenal. I want you to tell a little bit about that story. Yeah, well, thanks for saying that. I, ho- I hope the tears from um, reading the book was not the bad grammar. <laughs> no, not at all. I agree. <laughs> um, um, and, and I guess just to reassure anybody who does want to uh, read the book as you have, it's not all tears, there, as you would admit there there is lots of joy in there as well absolutely tears of joy and Um, sadness both yeah yeah well my journey in terms of Nepal anyway began 12 13 years ago I had a I had a patient in Australia in my rooms who were chatting away and she she told me about her thesis that she'd written about pelvic organ prolapse in Nepal she called it uterine prolapse but pelvic organ prolapse in Nepal and I said well that's a really interesting thesis but why Nepal of all countries and she said don't you realize there's more severe pelvic organ prolapse in that country than any other country in the world and I didn't know that I didn't know that at all I'm embarrassed to admit that the the uh, treatment of pelvic organ prolapse and incontinence is, is the major part of my work here in Australia and I thought, well, let's go over there to explore what's happening, just to see how prevalent it is. And to our horror, back in 2010, when we first travelled over there to, to see this firsthand, to our horror, it was everywhere. It's really severe prolapse, and not not just in you know postmenopausal women, the, the, the most the biggest uh, demographic in our country, but in women often in their 20s and 30s, really severe wow. prolapse. And we're still trying to work out why it's so prevalent. But I thought at that stage, I thought, oh, well, I'll just join some organization that's surely providing treatment for the prolapse in that country. But none existed. So wow. we, thought, we thought, well, bugger it. We'll start our own organization. So that's how we began um, back in 2010. I love that. And maybe for our listeners, because especially for the, our women who are new on their prolapse journey, yes. they often hear grades one to four. But when we say severe, what does that look like for those women in Nepal? It looks like a baby's head being born, to be honest. It's between the thighs, the upper thighs is this, and I'm, I'm sorry if it's a bit graphic, but this large lump of tissue, which usually includes the, the bladder and the, and the uterus and the bowel. And it's an awful image to have in your head, but it's the vagina basically turning inside out. And within that inside out vagina are those three organs or, or parts of those. And the first glance, you think that's that image reminds me of a baby's head coming through, a small baby's head. But that's severe. That's what we would call stage four, if you like. Okay. That's what is so prevalent over there. 
Wow. It's yeah. funny that you said that as soon as you mentioned that, that's the exact description I gave my husband when I first looked and saw my prolapse. I said in my sleep deprivation, you mom, <laughs> the hospital's inept. I've got a twin. They forgot there's another baby <laughs> in there, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I honestly have never seen anything like it. So just to clarify too, I always used to say my bladder was hanging out, but it wasn't the actual organ. It's the vaginal wall pushed out, isn't it? That's right. I often with my patients, I often um, use the analogy is if you put your tongue into the side of your cheek and you pushed your cheek sideways, that you oh, see yeah. the skin of your cheek bulging out. And it's actually, it's, it's your tongue, the other side that's pushing that. But as far as the vagina goes, it's the bladder pushing the um, the, the vaginal um, tissues out or the bowel pushing the vagina, that, or vaginal wall out or the uterus itself coming down or both or any combination okay. of that. Yeah. Right. And I think I remember reading in the book, which I'm definitely going to encourage everyone to do so because it's just so eye-opening. I think even if you're starting your journey, if you've had prolapse for years and lived in silence, just reading those stories of those women like, oh, now I understand that a little bit more. Because like you said, there's information out there, but generally speaking, it's very technical. It's for you guys who are fixing this, but for the person living with it, it's not in layman's terms. Like, but what does that mean? What does that look like? It's so hard to understand. But I think something from the book must have stayed with me where basically these women in Nepal were coming to see you and their mode of transport was walking. Mm. So they had to walk for miles or three days. Is that right? Up to three days. And that's not uncommon to... It's not necessarily many hundreds of kilometres. It's, it's probably a lot less than that, but it's up and down over mountains and, and across rivers and it, through landscapes that are really quite challenging to negotiate. The very few roads in in um, a rural, remote Nepal. It's it's just tracks, and yeah, so it's a, it's an arduous trip to and from the hospital. And basically, those women were carrying almost carrying their prolapses in their hand between their legs, right at certain points. Yeah, they have to. And these are all these are all farm workers. The, the, the large majority work on farms or try to. Um, and at their home with this quite heavy physical labour, trying to negotiate those. And as you say, using your hand to push things up and hold things up. So you, you've got one spare hand to do your work. And if they, when they walk to our little hospitals that we're working out of in the pool, for a lot of those journeys, they're holding the prolapse with one hand as well. Literally carrying. So yeah. I can only imagine that things like, I mean, I don't even know if they exist in in Nepal, which I'm sure we'll get to like pessaries, but a pessary would have very little chance of supporting that severe prolapse, right? That's right. And and we do use pessaries um, in as many women as we can. One of the other things over in Nepal is that they have so many other what we call comorbidities, the women that we see, they've got congenital heart disease, lung disease, the heart disease that we would fix in Australia in infancy, you wouldn't even link oh. having that done, but it's just not available in most parts of that country. And lung disease, they, their homes have got the, the cookers indoors, so the, the homes are full of smoke, or they, or they make their own cigarettes and, and, and without filters. We can't safely operate on a lot of these women who do need surgery. And so we do use, we try to use pessaries in many of those, but in addition to the problems that pessaries do have in some women, and I, and I know you've talked about this before in some of your other podcasts, 
in addition to those normal problems, we, with most pessaries, we need to reassess the woman every so often. And if mm. she's not unable to change it herself, we have to change yes. it for her every three to six months. But we, we're fearful with those, many of those women that we may not see them again. And, and oh, if they don't come back, they don't make that long journey again back to our hospital or to some health post, then the, the, the complications of leaving a pessary in long term are quite severe. And they, Are they? As you would know, probably the ulcerations and yeah. perforations and all sorts of horrible infections and things. That's the risk of not managing a pessary properly. So we frequently prescribe and insert pessaries for women and educate them on how to use them. But as they leave our clinic and our hospital, we sometimes we just think, have we done the right thing? Because sure. if you don't come back, you, you, you tell us you will come back. But if you if you don't, it, it, we may be cause, causing more harm than good. It, it's okay. a dilemma for us, to be honest. I understand. And the pessaries are something that you take with you? Yes. The, and to be fair with the, the medical system in Nepal, is very primitive but yeah. uh, it makes our own system look, look wonderful by comparison we, we take a lot for granted here um, I, yes. but, but the ne nepalese government does manage to provide a, not a great range of pessaries but a reasonable number to most clinics that we go to right and for someone who like myself have tried the you know seven i think i'm up to number seven pessary mm. different sizes and shapes is there for that severe prolapse a particular type that has been helpful for those women not for those women. They're, we're really limited. It's just the okay. basic ring pestries over there. Okay. We're talking about remote and pool, rural and pool, as opposed to places like Kathmandu where things are a bit more. Yeah. But in rural Nepal and remote Nepal, that's 80% of the population. It's really just rings is all we have. But there are, as you would know, other types of pestries that are more likely to be successful for more severe prolapses, but, but they're just essentially not available in the places that we work. Yeah. And I know you mentioned earlier, this is just out of curiosity, you're still working out why Nepal and why these women in particular are mm. having such a high occurrence rate for prolapse. Has there been any type of insight or indicator through your year since 2010? Yeah, there have. And it's, it's not just us who've been working on that, but it seems to be a number of factors rather than just a single one, mm. multifactorial, if you like. They carry heavy loads. It's part of their culture that they have these cane baskets on the back, docos they call them, okay. that they carry lots of heavy things like timber and, and often children and things that you can see them struggling as they walk along. It frustrates us, to be honest, because the, the men, their husbands are often walking along behind them, smoking and not carrying anything. It's, it's, it's wow. not that they're lazy, it's their culture. Wow. So heavy lifting is part of it. They, they don't have a, they have children at an early age. So they, okay. But we often see it in, in people who have only had one child. So it's not just the number of children and having big babies. They certainly don't have forceps deliveries. <laughs> We're talking about part, part of the world where most just had a traditional birth attendant looking after them, um, not a midwife even, but, but wow. someone might be the next door neighbour or, or an auntie or someone. So the, the, the labour's, I'm sure, got something to do with it. But the other thing, which is probably an explanation as to why they have such severe prolapse, they don't have much protein in their diet, a lot of people. It seems to be that's a part of it. Okay. And I think personally, I think... Our connective tissues, those uh, things that make up our ligament, the fascia. The fascia. I suspect there's some genetic thing going on there as well, because they they tend to get a lot of hernias as well, the men and the women. So it, okay. it seems to be something in the connective tissue. 
So it's mm. all coming together as a bigger piece of the puzzle. It's not just one thing. That's right, multifactorial. Yeah. yeah. Very yeah. interesting that you just mentioned four steps because I know that's one of our member questions is mm. talking about the use of four steps in childbirth. It's been a hot topic. And I think once you've had a four steps delivery and like myself and you come out the other side and you realize how political childbirth is it's eye-opening and a bit gobsmacking sometimes that there is a common perception that forceps is a major risk factor for pelvic organ prolapse and in particular with avulsions of the levator ani muscle do you have an opinion on that i don't know if you want to share that i mean i think it's quite um like I said, it's political. Everyone oh, yeah, has their different thoughts. <laughs> no, I'm very happy to share that, Stanford. And it is a really controversial topic, political as well. And if I can be basic about it, I, yes, I think people, women who have a forceps delivery of their baby are more likely to end up with uh, pelvic organ prolapse and incontinence. But it's not fair just to stop there because the very nature of the um, delivery, the, the labour that leads to forceps is one that's more complicated in the first place it's more likely to be a big baby for instance or a baby that's in an, where the head's in an awkward position and so you're not it's not fair to compare forceps generally with those who haven't had a forceps because without a forceps is by definition more likely a simple delivery i guess a fair question would be should, should forceps be avoided altogether and mm. the answer is absolutely not they shouldn't forceps should not be avoided altogether Okay. I think a, a simpler, a fairer way of advising women when they're making their choices, and they absolutely should be making their choice themselves as to the type of delivery they have. But forceps, the use of forceps should be minimised uh, and only for a very small, very small proportion of births where you know, the baby is in distress in those last few minutes and it's too risky to perform a cesarean section and that the safest thing for the baby in that situation is a quick delivery with a forceps, as, as awful as that probably sounds. <laughs> well, I think when you're a mum in that situation, your first and foremost thought is your baby. You don't really think about yourself. I never did. And I don't think any of our mums did. They just wanted their baby to be alive. Yes. And I think... And when you talked about making your own decisions and being informed, that's a really good point because I was only informed about one kind of half of the textbook of childbirth is that natural delivery and that we never even used just the words forceps or, or even a peasy on me. I was like, an peasy what? <laughs> yes. And then you feel really, I was like, oh, I was educated, but you feel really silly that you didn't know those things to be able to make decisions because, I mean, in my mind, I thought too, well, why didn't I just get a cesarean section? Like, why didn't they? But then later on, my, my obstetrician from my second birth explained it to me. They couldn't push the baby back up. She was already too far down. The damage to you and to the baby, had they tried to do that and then do a cesarean, could have been far worse. Yes, yes. And that's exactly right. And that needs to be explained to many women who have, have ended up like you having a, what sounds like a very necessary forceps delivery. Lovely to have a crystal ball. And, yeah. you know, the crystal ball before your first baby, Steph, you would say, well, look, you're going to have a complicated labor. The baby's head's going to get low and, and presumably get stuck. You're going to need forceps. So let's not even have a labor. Let's do a cesarean section electively before you even, before your labor even starts. It yes. would be lovely if you could. Hindsight. Yeah. And, and at the moment, we have nothing 
that really will give us a good guide as to whether someone's going to have a, a, a likely have a difficult birth and require some sort of forceps or vacuum. A way of assessing the, the likelihood of a labour ending up like that, uh, a way of assessing that is, is really poor. Uh, okay. We've got a few guidelines. If you're over 35 and you're having your first baby, then you're much more likely to have damage, yes. <laughs> Gestational <laughs> diabetes, big yeah, baby. That's right, big baby, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, many women who we assess during their pregnancies who do have big babies and, and many over 35, we think, oh, this is, the, you're probably going to better, be better off having a cesarean section. Many of those women come into labor the night before and deliver without any stitches and without any assistance and prove yeah. us wrong. So we're still, we still haven't got a great forecast as to the type of birth. And, and can I go back to Nepal just for a second? Yes, please. There seems to be a, a certain group of women who are more susceptible to pelvic organ prolapse when they deliver vaginally. And maybe, maybe, it's a stretch, but maybe we could use that group of women in Nepal uh, as a way of assessing who's more likely to end up with prolapse and incontinence. And maybe, we, we've thought about this as a possible research project, is, is if it is something in their connective tissues, if it's something that makes many women in Nepal and, and to a smaller extent, some women in Australia and other Western countries prone to prolapse and prone to incontinence from having a vaginal birth. Can we take a sample of their tissue, for instance, they mm. take a little biopsy of their tissue somewhere, even before they get pregnant and analyze that and look to see what's missing in that connective tissue that we can say, oh, now we've, we've done the studies and your biopsy, you have a 95% chance of ending up with prolapse. Or, that, that would be a wonderful Amazing. way to do it. And that, that does not exist at all. That's some research that we're, we're considering performing uh, just to try to identify much more accurately those who are going to end up with complications. I think I can almost feel everyone's head nodding, listening right now, saying, yes, please do that. It's not just for us. I mean, it's potentially, it is too late for a lot of us who are listening, but we have daughters and we also have sons that potentially might have daughters one day that we are now working for to make sure it's better for them. I think, yeah, it is. It's so hard, isn't it? Is there any scan or something you can do of the pelvis and the women's pelvic area to know that like I don't know if I've just heard that and it's not true or if it, it's just not accurate yeah it, and the answer is no certainly we can do scans and as you know scans in pregnancy are extremely common and we can measure the baby's head size and shoulders and we can measure the bones and we can even look at soft tissues in the woman's pelvis we can measure all of that but what we can't measure is how much they stretch how much those okay pelvic tissues stretch or how much the baby's head compresses during a labor. That's what we can't measure. Um, okay. It would be nice to measure the elasticity of those tissues in the woman. And that's what but perhaps this biopsy, if we get this research done, will do. We're, we're still a long way off. And, and, and as much as hope is that might give some people in this, this idea about biopsies, predicting those who are going to develop problems later on that we're still looking at years down the track if that comes to fruition but as far as your question goes the scan unfortunately no um, okay. we can get a rough idea but it's it doesn't really sure. help us with our with our assessment then and I guess that's part of my frustration is that we have so advanced in our especially in Australia in our medical technology and we've got these 3d printers and we've got virtual reality and the, the mums that we meet are generally first-time mums. The second-time mums seem to nail it. They're like it, the injuries and the prolapses 
are very minimal compared to the mums where it happens in their first birth and first pregnancy. So now we're trying to work on better educating those first time moms. And that's really hard because there's so much information out there. There's that political agenda of midwifery care versus obstetric care. Um, I don't know, in your practice, do you still kind of see that divide in, in labour? Where I work in Australia, which is which is largely Port Macquarie, New South Wales, we're blessed, I guess, that we medical staff and our midwives have a wonderfully harmonious relationship. And, and I know there are conflicts before in other areas where midwives will have one opinion and, and the obstetricians will have another. But for whatever reason, we're on the same page and that any slight differences of opinion about the management of labour, the route of delivery and so forth, any differences are sorted out very quickly. It's a women-centred practice that we work wow. in. We don't have private obstetrics in our, in our, in our town. It's oh. all of us um, gynaecologists, obstetricians, that choose to look after women in the public system. That helps wow. with harmony, I guess, but that's just the way we've chosen to work. But it shows that that can be done. And it's difficult for women who in other situations are getting perhaps one opinion from their midwife and another one from their obstetrician. Yeah. That's a really difficult network to maze to, to work your way through. And yeah. I, I guess in that situation where you're getting conflicting opinions from experts in their fields, I think you just have to keep on getting more and more opinions and, and, and work out a balance from that. You have to find someone you trust. I um, love that. Yeah. Yes. And, um, yeah. And I can I do you mind if I talk about gender for a second? I, please do. Please, I'm, please do. I'm the first male on your podcast. <laughs> and so it gives me extra honor, I guess. <laughs> and and I, I I guess it's a I guess it's something that disappoints me a little bit. I, I think every woman should have a choice as to the, the gender of the health professional she sees. And 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 I, I, I'm realistic enough to understand that most women would prefer a female doctor, a female midwife. That's the absolute choice for any woman mm. as the type of birth she has. I, I would, I guess, plead for women to maybe just be, maybe think a little bit broader for a minute because I, some of my colleagues who are female obstetricians kind of call it, are just wonderful human beings they're compassionate yes. they're good at their craft and you know i'll be happy for them to deliver deliver my own daughters but i also see and and have worked with some and, and one comes to mind in particular who had, had a number of babies herself very simple straightforward births she had as an obstetrician and had just no tolerance or, or understanding and minimal compassion for the women that she looked after. And now that, wow. that's not damning female obstetricians at all. But it, just as an individual, it, like with an yeah. individual, yeah. yeah. And yet yeah. other other male um, obstetricians I see are, are so compassionate. I, I, I suspect the danger is if you've if you've had a relatively easy time with labour childbirth. And you see somebody who's not coping, you, maybe if your personality is a certain type, that you're less tolerant because, oh, how come you're complaining? I never complain. That's all. Now, yeah. it's a sweeping generalisation. I don't believe you have to have had a brain tumour to be a good neurosurgeon, <laughs> etc. And I, I think it so much comes down to the personality. And I'd love to get away from this gender divide. Understanding fully, yep, absolutely, your choice. Yeah. <laughs> choose, choose the gender. But, but, um, but don't, don't fall into the trap of saying, well, she's a woman, so she must therefore understand better than a man. 
based on gender alone. And I, I actually, I love that you brought that up because I do feel like obviously we are still in this childbirth space a little bit and do see in particular on social media now, um, a lot of obstetric violence, it's called, is mm. always named and shamed male doctors in particular. Mm. And some conversations I've had have turned a little bit heated when I want to express that what happened to me was with a female midwife. They don't want to believe that mm. the agenda of um, particular groups of people who are gen- like, honestly, generally selling their services for childbirth and labor classes have to really believe what they're saying is to be the only truth because they've heard about obstetric violence from male doctors. However, when I then try and share that my second birth was with a male obstetrician who really walked with me and said, you don't need a cesarean for your second birth based on your medical individual, as you, Steph, Mm -hmm. mentally, then that's a whole nother, you know, whole nother ball game. When I try and explain that happened to me, I had that very caring person they just dismiss it like, oh, he's just one of a kind. Oh, he's just an anomaly. Sure, but that's fine. I, I feel like we get too caught up in male versus female, obstetric versus midwifery, and we forget about that poor mum in the middle who's kind of playing that tennis, like, who do I believe? Yes. Who do I trust? And it, it's, you get stuck. You really do get stuck. And I love that you said, like, we went uh, obstetrician shopping for the second birth and the first obstetrician we met, he was not our guy. After five minutes and having a conversation with him, I knew, I was like, oh, get me out of here. You're not my person. Male or female, I don't care. You're just (laughs) not my person. And then we kept looking until we found the one that was going to be for us. Now, where we live at that time, there were no female obstetricians. They were only males. So I understand where the angst comes from particular groups of women who are advocating for women's health and really trying to say, hey, it shouldn't all be about a male's decision. And I guess too, you know what, Ray, we've heard so many stories of obstetricians, male obstetricians saying, oh, I'll birth your baby tomorrow because um, the next day I'm going to Tahiti or I'm going to golf or I'm doing this. They, they do, they do. And, and those situations do exist. I hope they're much, much less common than they, they have been in the past. But we as a group, as obstetricians, we are own, our own worst enemy uh, in the sense that some of our colleagues have abused that situation where they, they can induce somebody at a time when it's inappropriate, or they can perform a cesarean section when it's not appropriate. That, that I have to admit, has happened and probably still does happen to some extent. But the, what that's led to, women absolutely should be saying, well, hang on now, why? why? But, and that's a good outcome as far as that goes. But where it is also the, the, the negative of that is that some groups think, well, therefore all inductions are wrong. Correct. And, and all cesarean sections are wrong. And there are many times when a woman should be, uh, the, the safest thing for her or for her baby is to induce her. Her blood pressure is high or the baby uh, is not growing properly or there's bleeding or whatever the many different possible risks mm. are. They reach the stage and, and we say, look, the, the safest thing you can do for your baby right now is to have him or her tomorrow, today. And, and we'll get reluctance from a small group to say no I don't that's not natural I don't I've heard bad things about inductions or I've heard bad things about us I don't want that and they have heard bad things and and some of those bad things are true 
that we we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's a terrible analogy. It's <laughs> not meant to be a pun either. I just, I just. Uh, yeah, I understand. But, yeah, but I, so it's it's being broad-minded about um yes, absolutely being the one in control, calling the shots, but listening to advice from someone you trust. Yes. That's hard. That's hard if you. It is. Yeah, it is. And especially if you haven't built up a relationship with the person who's going through the pregnancy with you, whether that's a midwife who's, yeah. who's, who's man managing a whole pregnancy or whether it's an obstetrician, uh, it, it's hard if you haven't built up that trust. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's not one extreme or the other. Inductions, caesarean sections have a place, but mm. um, be fully informed about them. And that's the other plea I would make. Yeah, and I think even just during a conversation, there was a conference once where I was invited to speak and during the interview, they were trying to tell, well, they were telling me statistics on induction and what it does for children in the long run. And I was like, this is not the time to be telling me. I, I chose to be in, induced because mentally I was not okay. I was so scared to go into labor the second time and have the same trauma happened that I asked to be induced. And you're now telling me that I have potentially damaged my son. I said, this is not the time. This is not the forum to have this conversation. You need to have this conversation with women who are not even pregnant yet much, much sooner because now I feel guilty and that's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, I completely agree. That's um, is inappropriate to women who have already had births. And, and gosh, um, if I can reassure you that if there was a significant risk about the outcome of a baby whose mum was induced to have him, him or her if that was a significant issue uh, we would know about it now and okay. you know despite what people may have heard uh, do not feel the, the slightest bit of guilt if you've been induced i mean you, in, in if that induction was done for the correct reasons you've actually helped your baby not hindered his or her yeah. yeah yeah thank you it's very reassuring hey let's take a quick break there is a lot to unpack in this episode. Grab a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, glass of water and come back. What I'm going to be doing now is maybe a little bit cheeky. I didn't talk to Dr. Ray about this, but I just felt after he gave so much of himself for this episode, I wanted to give back. And I hope that you can participate in this as well. And so what I'm thinking is that if you're listening to this episode and you're thinking, wow, this guy's amazing, or wow, this information's really helpful for me, I'm going to encourage you to go and buy his book. Because like I said, I have read the book and I have found it really impactful. By you going and buying his book, all of the proceeds go to building that hospital in Nepal for women to have their prolapse surgery. We're all in this together. It doesn't matter if we're in Australia, the UK or the US or Nepal. We're all women living with pelvic organ prolapse and we all deserve to have the care that we need. Just before we jump back into the second part of this amazing conversation, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts at the end. So stay all the way to the outro and I'm going to let you know how you can share those. Let's get back into it. I would actually like to, and I think a lot of our listeners are really just hanging on to find out more about prolapse surgery itself. We hosted a live event where we talked about surgery. I have not had surgery, but one of my peers has had surgery. And there's so many questions. Like we're really opening a massive can of worms. Are you strapped in? Are you ready? I'm strapped in. I'm ready. I'm <laughs> I mean, I think it would be helpful to just find out the narrative too. So when you go to Nepal, 
Are the surgeries that you perform there on those women with very severe prolapse the same as what you would do here for women in Australia? The large majority are in the sense that they are surgery with a vaginal approach. We do all the operating through the vagina in the vast bulk. In Australia, I guess we do 90% of the surgery is through the vagina and perhaps 10% is through the keyhole surgery, the laparoscopic procedure. Okay. Uh, in the remote parts of Nepal, we just don't have access to the, this advanced keyhole surgery that we would take for granted here and is at the end of our fingertips here at any time. So answer to your question, simple and most of the surgery is similar, but the 10% is not. Okay. So for the women who have this stage four prolapse with generally their three, three organs, hmm. how do you repair that? I, yeah. I don't want to use the word fix because I don't know if it does ever fix someone, but Walk us through that a little bit, and then yeah, I'm sure I've got a million more questions. Yeah, okay. And this is going to be a challenge. I'm willing. I'm willing to take this on without without <laughs> diagrams. It's to, to sort of take you through it verbally. So what we do for that uh, in these women, where the the perhaps I just talk about it, if it's just bladder and bowel first, if the uterus is not involved, that might be easy. And then we'll talk about when the uterus is involved after that. But with the bladder, we through the vagina, we, we open the, the skin, if you like, the, the lining of the vagina to expose the bladder. And we stitch the bladder back up to the top of the pelvis uh, onto very strong ligaments there. Okay. And those ligaments are on the side wall of the pelvis and way up very high near the sacrum. We stitch the bladder back up there where it belongs. Okay. Um, and then with the bowel, the same sort of thing. We open the skin in the vagina at the back, the back wall of the vagina, expose the rectum. Yep. and find the, the ligaments or fascia, as it's called, the, the tissue that, that holds it in place. And uh, that's usually torn. We will stitch that back together. I suppose in a similar way, you might fix ligaments in the knee or the, the foot, the ankle, stitch them back together and then close the skin in the, in the vaginal wall. And that's fairly similar to what we do in Australia. So opening the skin, find the ligaments where they're torn, stitch them back up to some very strong ligaments, close yep. the skin. That, that's, that's the bladder and the bowel. Do you do them right. both at the same time? Yeah, at so the same, during the, the same operation. Oh, yeah. the front and the back? Okay, right. Yeah. And uh, I know some of you <clears throat> women in podcasts that have been on before me, have gone back from multiple surgeries. Sometimes it's just the bladder and they fix that. And then a few years later, then the bowel comes down. That's sometimes the reason for their repeat surgery. More commonly, if you've got bladder prolapsing in a severe way, you usually have bowel prolapsing at the same time. Okay. When the uterus is coming down as well, which these severe prolapses, they will be, then we've got a choice to make. Do we, do we try to stitch the uterus up to these strong ligaments at the top of the pelvis as well? Or do we remove the uterus, do a hysterectomy? Okay. And, and to make that decision, if, if the woman's completed her childbearing, this, this, she's, she's absolutely convinced she's not going to have any more children, um, with her consent, we'll remove the uterus vaginally, the vaginal hysterectomy. Okay. Um, if she's not sure that she may want to have more, another child or not, or she's convinced she does want to have another child, then we'll stitch the uterus up to those ligaments. Um, it's an operation we did yesterday, actually, here in Australia, to some, some very strong ligaments up high in the pelvis. Strong ligaments, are they your levator ani muscles, or what um, are they? You no, know, those levator ani muscles are very important. But no, these are way up high, just next to the sacrum. It's, it's okay. a, the most common ligament we use is called the sacrospinous ligament. Very okay. strong ligament, even in women who've got severe prolapse. And it's up very high, but we can reach that ligament 
through the vagina and, and stitch either the uterus or the bladder or the bowel to that if necessary. Is it recommended that once you do these surgeries that you don't go and have another baby because it could potentially cause reoccurrence and those ligaments would either be stretched or come come apart, I guess? Yes, yeah, a good question. And the answer is yes. Okay. Um, if, if a woman does have another baby, we, we strongly recommend a caesarean section then because that will almost certainly tear. Um, but even just being pregnant, so even going to mm. full term and having a caesarean, that still puts a lot of stress sure. on those ligaments that we've, we've stitched back together. Yeah, yeah, I remember I did see a surgeon and his advice was, I will I will look at this further once you are 100% certain you are finished with your family and yep. no more pregnancies and birth. Yep. And I went back to see him after that. I said, yeah, I'm done. That's it. Yeah. I'm finished. But then to receive professional expert opinion that I had finished children and I did the urodynamics testing and then did further scans due to the evulsions I was advised that surgery has a high failure rate I'd like to talk about that some more because I know in my theme of questions here from our members that pops up a lot evulsions seem to be like another another layer of complexity say so do your women in Nepal also have avulsions? I yeah, know. so we need to explain avulsion uh, yeah. as well. I'm, I'm sure you'd be keen for me to do that. The, the majority of women who have prolapse, even severe forms of prolapse, do not have avulsion. What avulsion means is those those muscles you mentioned, the levator ani muscles, the, the ones that sort of hold everything in place, they are attached to the bones of the pelvis, to the side of the pelvis inside. It's like a hammock that comes down and that hammock has attachments at the front of the pelvis and the back of the bone, but also at the side. And and avulsion usually means that one or both of those um, sides of the pelvis muscles have actually torn away from the from the from the bones in the pelvis and maybe the analogy there is an achilles tendon or hamstring muscle where it's actually torn away from the bone so not all achilles tears achilles tendon tears coming away from the bone but a lot of them are away from the heel bone and some of the more severe hamstring muscle we're not just talking about a tear in the muscle but an avulsion that's pulled away from the bone and and when it's if i can continue with that analogy when it's a, an achilles or whether it's a, a hamstring avulsion tearing the muscle away from the bone the orthopedic surgeon will restitch that um, achilles tendon to the bone or restitch the hamstring muscle to the bone it's a big operation okay so back to the pelvis when you have an avulsion it's it's the worst form of prolapse even though it may not be visibly worse it may not be one of these ones where you see the organs between the thighs it's the most difficult one to 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 fix okay and at this stage in our evolution of pelvic floor surgery the the you're not going to want to hear this, but I suppose you already have. But I'm we bracing. Don't, yeah, we don't yet have the best operation to fix avulsion. That, it's okay. as simple as that. It, it will come because uh, okay. things are improving all the time. Even the operation we did yesterday was not for avulsion, but it was an in, 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 in operation we had not done before. It was an, an unusual type of prolapse, but we had to, not just me alone, but myself and another pelvic floor surgeon had to sit down and just work out a new plan to try to fix the prolapse. It's still happening with a minority of women. Okay. With avulsion, and I'm not sure what advice you've been given, but my personal opinion about avulsion is to hang on for the moment and, and, and do whatever conservative thing you can do until yeah. that, that science, that medical science does develop to a reliable procedure. 
that's yes. for AVOL. So we're talking about a minority. I know a lot of people listening you said have, have, have been told they've got avulsions and mm. into them. But if it is that, if it's not a if it's not a more common um, form of prolapse, then probably I'm generalizing, but for most women right now, 2022, hang on there, do your conservative thing, use your pestry, absolutely okay. keep doing your, your pelvic floor muscle training. Ah, uh, yes. And, and and watch the space, I guess. Okay. Well, that's I think that's part of the, the issue too, Ray, is that pessaries don't generally fit they don't stay in because yes. of the avulsion it yes. doesn't it doesn't yeah it's one of those it's really complex and I think a lot of women who are under care providers that don't know how to look for avulsions or don't have the tools to to diagnose them they are feeling really lost because they're told that oh you can you could go and have surgery and then the surgery fails only to later find out oh you have bilateral avulsions or, or you know one-sided avulsion so there's no stitching of that is there you can't actually stitch that part no, not yet i think it will come just just as there is stitching to, for the hamstring and the and the achilles and shoulders yeah. and so that will that will very likely come or at least a, a modification of that Right, but at because the moment, it's not, there's not a there's not an accepted reliable way right. of treating the adoption. Yes. I love that you said accepted because mm. I can let you in on a little secret. We are like the top investigators in our group because yeah. there's a number of prolapse spaces online, and two doctors' names come up a lot in America who claim to fix avulsions, mm. and when you look into it even further and further. I've tried to make an appointment with one to have a discussion about it because I want to know what are you doing that no one in Australia who can care for me is not doing. I'm really interested to know. Yes. We, we can't get that answer. It, mm. No one can answer that question, which then begs the question, it scares me that people are in this space saying that they can be fixed and they have been fixed. And then I've got other women who say, I'll sell my house to get this because this particular doctor is charging 60,000 American dollars up up to um, between 40 and 60,000 dollars and I just think oh my gosh I don't I would hate for a woman to have to go through all of that only to find out that there is not an accepted standard of care for women with avulsions yeah and and it it opens the the theme of, of people claiming to be able to cure a number of diseases, not just in gynecology, but I've got this cancer cure or I've got this cure for, for yeah. neurone disease or whatever it is. And, and people people do get desperate and people will literally sell their houses mm-hmm. sometimes to, to do this. And it's and it's uh, yeah, I, I can't think of I can't think of something as amoral as that, really. That's that that, that is exploiting right. people's weaknesses. Fertility is another issue where where people will, ah. you know, have been desperate to have a baby and they've had IVF and multiple times, and they'll hear about someone who has a who has who will guarantee almost guarantee they'll get them pregnant. And it, you know, it's a shame that there's no adequate policing of that sort of thing. And now I, I can't damn these two surgeons in the states. Maybe they have got an answer that I haven't heard of, but we. Yeah, my colleagues and I who have this, who are who are pelvic floor specialists, if you like, we watch that we watch that um, research very closely. Yeah. So are you all connected on another layer with those no. around the world as well? No, no, we we're not. We don't sort of all have a. There's not a, um, a clicky group that <laughs> that uh, is an elite group that just only speaks to each other. No, no, it's just uh, there's different um, groups in Australia, for instance, who regularly contact each other. But there's not a there's not a formal group who always know what each other's doing. Okay. Um, 
But if you have a, a recipe to fix, in this case, the ethical thing to do would be to share that with other colleagues. <laughs> you know, yeah. if, your, if your primary aim is the welfare of women, then you're going to share that rather yeah. than a secret recipe so that only you can, <laughs> you can fix do it. it. Yeah, I understand that element only as a backstory. My, my very best friend had motor neurone disease and she worked with doctors in America and Australia and France, kind of all around the world. And it seemed to be like there was this competition as to who can find a treatment first and they wanted that exclusivity so I've seen that side of things I can see what where the ego comes in and really wants to be the the first person to do it so if he is keeping it a secret because he wants to be the first then there's nothing we can actually do about that right no there's not and and it's human nature in many I guess and it and the, the positive of that, it does drive medical innovations. And some of it, without that ego, then, then I, I guess the medical advances wouldn't be as great as they are. But but you've got to be so cautious that, that, oh, yeah. you know, that, that people may be trying to rip you off, basically. Yeah. yeah, I think so. We have, I mean, as I said, we kind of look into this because I feel very... Um, very protective of the women in this space because I know how vulnerable I am. I know that with every new pessary or every mentions the word of a 3D individually fit pessary, I'm like, I'm onto it because I am desperate too. So when I see things like this and people popping up talking about that always raises a red flag for me. I think that's just part of my DNA. I'm like, why are you still in this space? If you're fixed by prolapse, why are you still here talking about this one doctor? (laughs) You should be moving on. (laughs) And yeah, you need to have a healthy cynicism, which which is what you're describing, Steph. So I take my hat off to you for that. And, and, And more should do the same thing. And can I touch on how do you choose your doctor then? How do you choose your um obstetrician uh, who's going to be the one who's going to give you the safest care how do you choose your surgeon if you if you do have prolapse and you want to have that fixed and it's that's really hard for the lay average person because they might have had a friend who said oh, i went to this doctor and, and he or she was great but that that's not a very good sample series of course they might have just, you know you, you you they might have a good website and have glowing comments on that and of course they're going to be selective about the reviews of their of their skill of their outcomes what what i would say it's easier for us in the medical field because if i if i break my leg i know the orthopedic surgeon in my my hospital and i I know the ones who i would be happy fixing that but the average person doesn't know that so what do you do the simple thing i would say is go and speak to nursing staff or go speak to midwives who do they who do they see when they get pregnant, who do the midwives okay. see? Uh, who do the if um, a nurse in operating theatre, she's watching and, and and seeing the surgeon every day. Which not just one surgeon, she's seeing a number of surgeons. I'm saying she, there are some male nurses too. But who would who do they recommend if they had a prolapse? Mm-hmm. Knowing that they've watched the the doctor operate and a number of different surgeons, who who would they recommend? And the same with any not just gynaecology but any area. That that's what I would recommend. Which that's is, the simplest just, way. Yeah, that's great because that actually answered one of our questions too the how do you choose someone and you know can you ask people for references and that answered all of that so you're amazing I we do have one of our long-term members has asked a really important question and she wants to know what's the difference between a consultant um, obstetrician gynecologist and a urogynecologist yeah Yeah, good question as well consultant obstetrician gynecologist is a specialist a, a doctor who's done the basic training, become a general doctor, and then spent six years minimum training to become a a specialist in obstetrics and gynecology. 
A urogynecologist is someone who's gone on a stage beyond that where they've subspecialized. They've, they've done those basic training, the, the six years to become a specialist. And then they said, okay, I'm going to do another, what's usually a couple of years extra in this specific area. And that area may be in infertility or it may be in cancer, gynecological cancer. Okay. Urogynecology is one of those subspecialties. So it's someone who is more likely to be proficient in performing the surgery or advising on the pessary or advising on the, the physiotherapy that, that might be required as well. But, but, but managing someone with pelvic organ prolapse and incontinence. As a general rule, a urogynecologist is going gonna, is gonna to be more ex- well, there will be more experience. They're going to be of a better quality than a general gynecologist obstetrician. But here's the thing that's going to make it more, more confusing. There are some very, very good general gynecologists. I am not a urogynecologist, but, okay. but I choose to specialize in that area without doing an extra two years. There are some. Ah, okay, there, I see. There, yep, there are some. There are some urogynecologists who are superb. And I'm having discussions with them. Sometimes we work together. Sometimes occasionally they'll come to Nepal with us. But there are other urogynecologists that I, I certainly would not recommend for pelvic floor. So it's not simply okay. a matter of finding a urogynecologist. Generally speaking, they'll have much more experience and, and quality with their surgery than a, than a general consultant obstetrician gynecologist. But many exceptions to that. To the rule. And so then, so even the term urogynecologist then doesn't specifically mean they're a pelvic organ prolapse specialist, right? Because they could deal with cancers and things. Is that what we... No, no, I'm sorry. I probably didn't explain that properly. Oh, sorry. They, yeah, no, it's they okay. They, they would still consider themselves a, a urogynecologist, would still yep. consider themselves a pelvic organ prolapse specialist, but they, and usually, and the majority are very good. I, I don't want to damn urogynecologists because some of my good friends. Of course, of course. <laughs> but, yeah. But some, I, I get people like me and people like the chap I worked with yesterday, also a general gynecologist, get ref- see patients whose, whose surgery has failed with a urogynecologist and, yes. and, and some more so than others. And we, we do surgery, sometimes it fails as well. But I see the work of some urogynecologists and it's not necessarily really high quality. Okay. But I say again, the majority are terrific, but there's a significant minority who, who whose skill set is not is not operating. Such a minefield, yeah, and it's it actually um, one of my great friends, Lucy Bloom, who wrote the book um, "Cheese to Childbirth: A Guide mm. for Dads." It was her that said to me, "If you, Steph, are ever going to go down the path of surgery, you need someone who does this in a third world country mm. all the time." <laughs> yeah right because yeah. they are just so across everything and they do it without the red tape and political barriers where they are just constantly helping women in Nepal when you are you know conducting these surgeries all the time is it easier there to do what you need to do like is there more red tape here in Australia and barriers to be able to repair prolapses it's harder actually there is more red tape here i guess but we don't want to abuse that we we, there's more red tape with consents for instance and so there should be yeah but we it would be immoral to go and perform an operation there unless a woman had full consent the paperwork is not great but there's a language barrier and and we have translators but then there's all these different dialects so now we're drawing pictures and things to try to explain but it's but from that point of view it's easier and that that we know we're less likely to get sued for instance if someone has a problem but it's more difficult because you you know from reading the book the the conditions are really primitive oh yeah. yeah we don't have a 
we don't have a, um, a blood bank, for instance. And as you know, if someone is um, needing a blood transfusion over there, if it's the only way to save their lives, we know their blood group. We just work out which volunteer amongst us has got the same blood group. And they wow. lie down on the table next to the patient and that's a direct blood transfusion. It's as, as primitive as that. So from that point of view, it's harder. In intensive care and, and we don't have the, the fancy monitors, and which is why we choose not to perform the surgery on those who are likely to have heart problems or lung yes. problems in the surgery. Um, that makes but it, that then if i can go on from there as you as you probably know we're building a hospital in remote nepal just for women and babies the childbirth will take place there as well where we can do this with more modern equipment and with yes. an intensive care with a blood bank and we've got a battery operated light yeah, that's, <laughs> right. No, that's right the torches um and we've been training we've been training local gynecologists for 10 years now we've been training them and we've got a, we've got a whole team ready to go there of local uh, doctors and nurses and midwives and i can give you this first um steph oh i love it go <laughs> on the, breaking news on your podcast the next two weeks time less than that two weeks from yesterday i go back to nepal on the 22nd of april when i'm over there for that trip we're turning the sod we're start we're finally starting building the hospital <laughs> that's amazing but yeah so that's going to be really special we'll get the australian ambassador going over and all these other people to for a photo opportunity and we haven't we're, we're still raising funds for our hospital and, and that's where the book comes into play every cent from the book helps build a hospital it's an entirely not-for-profit but we're so we're about 80 percent there in terms of fundraising so close you've yeah. done an amazing and, job by the way we, well, well i've had so much support as you, as you can imagine yeah. but we figured we've got even though we're not there with a the fundraising yet we've, we've got enough to start and we're, we're, ex we're expecting that once the, people see the foundations going in and the bit of structure that'll inspire more Centervise. To yeah. of course yeah. of course is this the first time you've been back during covid Yes, so it's been two years. So we would usually go a few times a year mm. with our teams, and it's been intensely frustrating. Even if somehow we could have gotten over there in the last couple of years, the hospitals were full of COVID patients anyway. So, of course. so there's, you can imagine the backlog of people with with prolapse. But most most people never get their surgery operated on over there. It's another. And thing. they just live and die with it. Yeah, and and you wow, know, yeah. shit. The, this is another sort of tear-jerking thing. The, the majority of Nepalese men are, are, are really compassionate, tolerant people, but there's a significant minority who are not. And, you know, they've got a wife who is on the farm and can't work around the farm anymore and, and can't have sex with her him, mm -hmm. him anymore. Of course. And they'll turn, they'll, they'll basically get her to leave and they'll like cast her out. Yep. discard yeah and you've heard that in african women as well with the fistulas it's the same sort of thing and you know the the suicide right the, the, the leading cause of death in nepal and women is, is suicide you know up until the age of 50 and it's the, so the emotional um impacts of that let alone the physical impacts but they're they're massive and and and, and so that's if, if you need a motivating voting <laughs> motivating factor to do what we're doing that's that alone's enough yeah oh my gosh mm. yes that that is that's intense, really. Yeah. Yeah. And when we hear, you know, like obviously we are, we're in contact with women who have prolapse from around the globe who quite often, and I, I really hate it, I don't know if you've ever heard this, that oh, prolapse is not a life-threatening injury. And I say I call bullshit on that because yeah. we talk to women who yeah. are on the edge. Yeah, I second your motion of bullshit there. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love yeah. that I got you to say bullshit. Um, <laughs> so because it just, you would see these women who are suicidal and sure their cause of death on the certificate might not be 
probably call them prolapse, but the yeah. prolapse caused them into that deep despair and depression and reading these women's stories. Even this morning, I woke up and read a story from a lady who had repair surgery. She doesn't believe she understood that mesh would have been implanted mm. and then she had mesh complications and now she's had it removed, but it's caused a whole nother layer of complexity that I think that mesh conversation is a whole nother, mm. a whole nother episode perhaps, yes. because yeah. that's quite very detailed, but just reading that. And then she's like, I think I might have PTSD. I'm like, well, of course you do. Yeah. Yeah. My gosh, look what yeah. you've been through it all the while. You have to pretend you're okay and you're a good mummy. That's right. Yeah. It's not as if you've got some complication with an operation on your elbow. It's a part of your body that's just so intimate and, and it's got so many implications for your bladder function, Everything. bowel function, sexual function. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you, you've so often got to suffer in silence. It, it, it's um, it, it, absolutely PSD, PTSD is an issue with that. So, yeah, the emotional impacts of that are, are massive. And, you know, we, we, I see patients here who, who read the book and they and they come in with their prolapse, which is not usually as severe, but they'll say, oh, I feel like I shouldn't be here because those poor women in Nepal. And we say, no, no, absolutely not. You, we've got to fix you as well. Um, yeah. we, we've got to keep one eye on the other side of the world as well and do whatever we can for them. But I have two daughters, Steph, my, my two daughters are in their 20s. I, I don't want them to get this as well. Or if they did, I want them to be able to have it fixed the, the best way possible. Yeah. yeah, have some treatment. I would love to ask a little bit more about that because when we talked about, I think we've covered the hysterectomy, no hysterectomy thing. What is classified as a successful surgery? And at what point does someone say that it's failed or it's prolapse has reoccurred? Yeah, yeah. And and that very reasonable question. And we've got no direct answers to that. Mm. I mean, the, what, the operation we keep talking about yesterday's big operation, the, we're calling that a success because there's no prolapse there anymore. But if for some reason that breaks down in 10 years' time, you need another operation, does that mean it's a failure? In some people's eyes, yes. But in others, no. Gosh, you've got 10 years of success. That's terrific for such a severe prolapse. The plastic surgeons laugh at us doing the, doing the, the facial um, <laughs> lift, face lifts and and so forth, because when they do their facelifts, they say they'll, they'll give the patient five years before it's going to come down here. And us plastic surgeons are saying to us, prolapse surgeons, what are you beating yourself up for? You know, you, the things that, of course, are just going to wear and tear again. So th there is no time on, on what's classed as the success or a failure. I think most people um, would say absolutely 10 years is the success. We hope when we do the prolapse surgery, it never comes down again. But the, I, I guess our biggest biggest challenge with prolapse surgery uh, is not the uterus or the bowel it's the bladder if okay. someone's going to get a recurrence from having a bladder uh, pro or having a having a, a prolapse repair it's the bladder that's the one that the current surgical techniques are least successful if you like in terms of them getting a recurrence within five years that's um, interesting yeah. so that's a sister seal that's the, that's that's the, sister the, seal, the correct. technical yes, term sister, yeah yeah so the the sorry cut you off the traditional way a sister seal is repaired is um, it, most of us feel is, is, is inappropriate for a lot of women. That's why there's about a 40% recurrence rate um, oh. in, the, in, the, in the traditional way of fixing a sister. So about 40%, about half of those have another operation, about 20% have another operation. But we feel in the surgery we did yesterday that in certain types of sister seal, probably 60%, 
it needs a different sort of operation to fix that still through the vagina okay. but, it, but, it, but attaching the bladder to different ligaments that we're currently attaching it to ah so there's uh, still stitching but yep. to a different ligament that's right okay. so it depends on the type of sister cell and it, it'd be too hard to explain this without drawings but sometimes it's the bladder in the middle coming down sometimes it's come away from the side not talking okay. about levator avulsion but the bladder yeah. itself has come away or sometimes it's, it's from the top up high in the pelvis and so i, I think we as as some um, general as gynecology surgeons have been guilty in treating sister seal surgery sisters the same whatever standard the, yeah and and that it needs to be individualized just like labor needs to be individualized and, and, yes. and care of lots of things so the management of a sister seal needs to be individualized as well and and that's where and gosh i'm not blowing my own, own trumpet there's many people <laughs> like me but that's where you need to somehow if you've got a sister seal or any product you need to seek out somebody who who is familiar with those sorts of things and Yes. Said before, find speak to people who are in the know. And it's not just your friend who might have had surgery. That doesn't mean that you're going to get the same result. It's it's other doctors or nursing staff if you get access to those. Yeah, and I guess that access is is quite hard. So I love that you've said it here on the podcast because all of our audience can listen to this and then now try and seek out a nurse or a doctor rather than their friend or whoever. Yeah. Yeah, and I've been remiss not mentioning physiotherapists. They've got a massive role in this. I have a physiotherapist in the room next to me. We work together. But, okay. but, but, but you know, you, you may not, everyone may not have friends who are nurses or doctors, but, but they can contact, a, and not just a physiotherapist, as you know, a pelvic floor physiotherapist. And it's usually she, I don't know any males, there probably are some males, but she... she I haven't um, met one. No, I haven't met one. But she will usually know of, of surgeons and their success rate as well. Okay. If she's working with a, a surgeon, even, even better. better. Yeah, because she'll know the, the ones to recommend as well. So that's another, another way through that maze of finding the appropriate surgeon. Yes, right. So I'm going to try and pronounce a word that I might not get right. Is it assistoscopy? Cystoscopy, is that right? Sorry for laughing at you. But <laughs> cystoscopy, yeah, cystoscopy. And so the question from one of our members was, should women get that before having prolapse surgery and how is it beneficial? Yeah, the answer is no. Only a small proportion would need it. A cystoscopy is just a, a telescope through the into the bladder, through the urethra. Ure it's a very common procedure. We'll often do it during the operation just to make sure we the bladder hasn't been damaged or the ureters haven't been damaged so often during the surgery but pre-operatively there's very few women who actually need that they've usually okay. got specific symptoms uh, related to the bladder maybe some blood in the bladder or maybe they've had surgery before and want to check that hasn't been damaged but yeah but no the, the vast majority of people who need surgery for prolapse do not need a cystoscopy pre-operatively no. okay and that's great that you've answered that too that you you, you sometimes do it well generally do it during the surgery as well. So that might answer her question. Is there a gold standard for prolapse surgery being vaginal, abdominal or robotic? I know you've talked about 90% being vaginal here in Australia and Nepal. Is yeah. there a gold standard worldwide? What people will, will see if, if you Google gold standard pelvic floor surgery. I hate that term, by the way. <laughs> yeah, me too. They'll see the laparoscopic procedure with, with the name of a laparoscopic corposacropexy. Go oh, and yeah. say that one, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it before, but I'm not going to even yeah. try. I'll just keep saying bullshit. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, you're better at saying that one. And that's stitching the, uh, the top of the vagina or the uterus, stitching that to the back of the sacrum, that bone, the sacrum, and using mesh. That's the rub, and using mesh. 
but it'll still say, I'm, I'm sure in the majority of websites, this is the gold standard, a laparoscopic colposacropexy using some mesh and stitching that from the top of the vagina to the, to the sacrum. And there's no doubt that works very well in those who have got that sort of prolapse. So not everybody has it, but those severe forms of prolapse that that is inverted commas, a gold standard. But as you know, we're just not using mesh anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. That's yeah. Cause this all happened to me in 2015. And then that, I think that was still kind of talked about, but then the, the banning of mesh meant that yeah. can't happen anymore, which meant the recurrence rate was going to be quite high for me yes. with evulsions. Yeah. evulsions. Yeah. So, yeah. and I think that the, the, the procedure we did yesterday in, mm. included a laparoscopic approach and stitching the, uh, the uterus, up, but not not using mesh. It was using some a form of nylon proline, and using that on some ligaments high up in the pelvis. So there's no mesh. So um, what what was that again? Say that again. Oh, so it's, we, that was a laparoscopic, so a keyhole laparoscopic procedure, yeah. stitching the uterus up to it fallen out through the vagina, basically. We, we, so we stitched this uterus up to some ligaments in the pelvis. Okay. We did that laparoscopically, but instead of using mesh, we used. Um, nylon oh nylon sorry yeah. I, that's uh, the bit i missed oh, yeah nylon, ni- yeah. nylon. like nylon. literal nylon yeah you... it, it's not a and using nylon is not unusual we call it proline it's a form of nylon okay. it's, an, it's a non-absorbable suture ah, it, it's okay. used that's what they uh, the orthopedic surgeons would use for instance with with their avulsions it's a it's a permanent suture it doesn't dissolve okay um, so we, we used that yesterday that um, is very likely to replace mesh used in the abdomen okay Hey, yes, I've got mesh in the abdomen as well for a yeah. desmoid tumor. So that I, I'm a, a fay with mesh, but yeah. are you are they thinking nylon might be their replacement yeah. for the mesh and how yeah, it's it, used it, now, like the slings and things like that? Yeah, slings is another <laughs> issue altogether. We can talk about slings, but but uh, in terms of prolapse for severe forms of prolapse, the, it's too early to know. But it looks like some form of suture, nylon, proline, that, that something that doesn't absorb. It looks like that will replace mesh in the abdomen. Um, okay. And and, we, and is it going to be successful? We need five or ten years to know. Yeah. Um, certainly, that's... yesterday's was very successful in that short, very short term, and we're expecting it's going to be long term as well. I was thinking about her when you said that it was successful yesterday. I thought, oh, but has she stood up yet? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I don't know. Like yeah. when she stands up and the gravity and how gravity and nature work, I wonder how she's going to feel. That's the thing. And there's two forms of success. One is yesterday's, you know, we're, again, not to be too gross about it, but we're at the end of the operation, we're pulling on the uterus and it's not budging. It's really firmly fixed high up in the pelvis where it should be. Okay. And so we know it's, we know it's fixed. So that's the first thing. Is it, is, are the actual appearances normal? And the appearances absolutely were. And this poor girl yesterday, you know, and I've heard you describe and interview people on your podcast who are having dreadful problems with intercourse. That was one of her big problems at the age of 35, 36. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of, the anatomy of her vagina, it, it's perfect after yesterday, absolutely perfect. Okay. But you're quite right. If she stands up, we know that nothing will fall down because we were <laughs> pulling yeah, fairly firmly. You had to test it, right? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Okay. But, but will her discomfort um, disappear? And will her will, will it now become comfortable with intercourse? We expect so, but, mm. but it, it's going to be six weeks before we know whether that component is fixed. So two aspects to the success of a surgery apart from how long it lasts, is one, the anatomy. Does that look normal? And yesterday, absolutely. Yep. Then the second one is the symptoms. Will she be comfortable? And yeah. we expect so, but but to be absolutely fair, we don't know with certainty for at least six weeks. Can I ask you, do you and the, the, your um, attending surgeon also, do you recommend to her 
six weeks as the recovery? Generally, uh, some people, are, we, we reassess them during that six-week period. And, okay. and some, when we reassess them at the six-week um, time period, some will say, look, you need another couple of weeks. I don't recommend intercourse for another couple of weeks. Or, you know, if you're a gym junkie, <laughs> recommend you, you, you hold off with that for a while as well. And I know it's a whole other issue. And I know you've talked about this before on other podcasts. Mm. What exercises can you and shouldn't you do afterwards and mm. what sort of restrictions? And that's a whole argument discussion in itself. But, but generally speaking, most people people can do most things after six weeks but sometimes eight yeah yeah, well I think after talking with Sherry Palm who's you know I'm not sure if you've heard of her yeah when I talked to her for her interview she has had mesh surgery but she is saying which I would agree with even after having this abdominal surgery 12 weeks should Mm. be the minimum before you try and return to normal in inverted commas And that includes sex because the six weeks just doesn't seem to be long enough. But if we tell women six weeks and then they jump back into life, even the one I was reading this morning after six weeks, intercourse continued and then that caused problems. And I think Hmm. you've probably answered it by saying she should have had more checks in between and said, you know, you might need to give it more weeks. But why can't we just say longer? Why can't we just say 12 weeks minimum? <laughs> <laughs> we probably can. I, I, it's just, I, I have this um, issue when I, when it, I know in some women, six weeks is enough in some, and, and okay. you're quite right. Some do, do need more than that. But I, I, I have this guilt, <laughs> rightly or wrongly, that if I say, look, you need 12, 12 weeks, when inside I'm thinking, oh, you might have got away with six. I, I, <laughs> I feel like I'm not being honest. And it's, I, I know what you're saying. You say six weeks and people will, will say, okay, well, like four weeks, we'll start, you know, I'll, I'll start trying intercourse and going back to the gym. I, I get that. And maybe you're right. Maybe I should be a little bit dishonest to the patients, but I I, I tend to be selective about it. Um, okay. And uh, obviously you treat them as individuals and you yeah, will assess yeah. them. But I'm just thinking more so in terms of which I think probably people have not considered is that if we say six weeks and that female person goes to their employer and says, I need six weeks off for surgery, they're expected to go back after six weeks and be fine. If we say 12 weeks, their employer then has an understanding that it's 12 weeks and, and it might be returned to duties, lighter duties first. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think because if we're only giving them that that one, maybe if, even if we said somewhere like, oh, it's six weeks with the potential of another six weeks or something, just so that that open dialogue starts from the beginning because personally I know from when I was pregnant and was having some difficulties my male boss made my life hell when I needed when I said I just need to go to this appointment and then at that appointment I was told to go to another appointment and it really ticked him off he's like what this is unreliable are you telling the truth Mm. I'm not saying all bosses are like that but For something like this, that is so, it's such an integral part of the core of who we are as women, more time to heal even mentally after what what you've just been through physically, it can't hurt. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with almost everything you say. I, yeah. I suppose the only negative of that, and I, I fully accept it's not just physical healing, it's emotional healing, and your boss is maybe not going to be understanding, and it's you keep on changing. What do you mean? You said six weeks now. I get all that. I suppose the, the reason I'm, I try to be selective, rightly or wrongly, is that some people, if I'm saying, look, you're going to need 12 weeks off work, 
they'll say, I can't, I can't do that. I'll have to, I'll have to wait for, I'll have to wait till I'm retired or I'll have to oh. wait for a few years. And so they're going to miss out on something. Of that's course. That, that's, that's why I, I'm selective. But I hear your argument and, and it's reasonable that mm. uh, they shouldn't, there shouldn't be this expectation that they're going to return to work at six weeks in every case. And, and, yeah. I, and I also agree that that needs to be qualified. But how, how long will I need off work, doctor? How, when I have this operation, how long before I can go back to work? Well, and what do you do? Well, you know, I'm, I, I sit down at the desk. I'm the secretary. I, I don't have much, mm. you know, do you have to lift much at all? Do you expect it to do? And the answer is no. I'll say, well, in your case, with your specific operation, six weeks is probably all you're going to be. There's a chance you're going to need more than that. But mm -hmm. let's go six weeks. Tell your boss maybe more, but that's it. But yeah. uh, but you change that around, how, doctor. How long am I going to need for my time off work for my operation? What do you do? You know, I'm a gym instructor. Even just walking, even just walking yeah. from my car to drop my children off at school, yeah. I can feel the prolapse yeah. descending. And then you think, yeah. well, how do I? How do you even walk to go and get your lunch? Like it's really yeah. basic yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, it is, and and it's it. And I had someone the other day. I've never had this before. She was a saxophonist. She wanted to know oh, yeah. how long, to, and I, I thought, I don't know the answer to that question. So we actually got to bring her saxophone in. To below, yeah, to play. The, yeah, before the surgery. And, and, and the physiotherapist and I just assessed her pelvic floor as she was playing. And Amazing. <laughs> so sometimes you have to sort of work it out as you go. Well, yeah, that, that's so true. Here's just a funny side note. I can't even blow up a balloon for my kids. So that it comes to their birthday party, I have to buy a pump because <laughs> blowing a balloon yeah. puts so much pressure with every push into the balloon. Yeah your prolapse exits your body and it's really oh, uncomfortable. I never really thought about that. That's another, it's another drawback of prolapse. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, simple things like that. This is yeah. what I mean. It's so um, I think I, there's a couple more questions, if you don't mind, just from our, or, you know, from our community before we wrap up because the age is a thing. So age, I know what you talked about for ovulations to wait as long as possible just to see what happens in the, in the innovation space. Yes. But prolapse surgery in general, I think a lot of women are told, wait until it gets really, really bad, until you're old, until post-menopausal. But then, like you've just said, you've just had surgery on a 35-year-old woman yesterday. Mm. What would you recommend, I guess, for women listening right now? Yeah, another really good question, whoever wrote in with that one. But yeah, I don't agree at all that wait till you're old and well, wait till it gets really bad before you have the surgery. I think a better answer is see if, if the conservative measures work for you. Mm. If the pelvic floor muscle training with a physiotherapist or a pessary works and you're happy with that, go for it. That's not an issue. If you're, if, if you're happy using it, have the surgery, absolutely. Avulsion at the moment, hold off until the innovation comes for that which it, which it will for your prolapse or your incontinence and and that they haven't worked um then if the symptoms are bad enough then absolutely get it fixed don't wait till you're 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 get it get it fixed now because you're going to have for the, for the majority of prolapses you're going to you're going to have a much much healthier lifestyle if it's done correctly um, yes and, you know and, and it's it seems wrong to put up with symptoms for what might be another decade or more Yes, I love that. And I think that makes total sense. I mean, women who, and this is the thing when we're in this space constantly, women who have had successful surgeries generally say, thank you for the support, I'm out. And then they get on with their lives. So you don't hear a lot of the positive stories as much as you do the ones where their surgery has failed or they've had that reoccurring prolapse because they're still stuck in this space of trying to manage and survive living with yeah, prolapse that's right. um yeah. i think i think oh yeah sorry there's one last one that's right. 
what would be, what do you think would be the optimal timing for surgery? Meaning, sorry, I'll start that again. I got that totally wrong. What would be the optimal period, time period for women who are wanting to, who have had prolapse, potentially from their first birth or before, wanting to have another baby? Is there a time frame that would make it better to have another baby, like sooner or later? Or mm. yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, I think I understand your question. I mean, the best answer is not to have a baby at all. They're not they can't say don't ever get pregnant again, but you know, you know, wait for your childbirth to be complete before you have your surgery. But if, if they've had their prolapse surgery and they want to get pregnant, then basically the longer the better to wait. And certainly at least a year or two. And fighting that is if you're in your second half of your thirties or your your forty, <laughs> you don't want to leave it too late. That was me. Yeah, I was, yeah, but you don't want to leave it too late, mainly because your fertility will suffer as well. But generally speaking, if you've had prolapse surgery and you think, well, actually, I think I will have another baby, uh, delay because the, the the longer that can be, the better. And we don't know whether it's one year or two years or, or three years. We don't, no one's done that research, but okay. it, just, it stands to reason that that um, as long as you're not your biological clock is not ticked too far and your your, your fertility is then going to suffer as long as you're, you're keeping an eye on that as well then then let it let it go for as long as you can okay so i love that, that. so even if you haven't had surgery so one to two years is that to just give your body a chance to recover from the first birth as well um yeah so this is someone who's had a baby and then had prolapse surgery you're talking about uh, no so someone who's had a baby Ah, sorry. It got pelvic yeah. organ prolapse and yep. then wanting yep. to have another baby uh, like I'm me. Sorry, I misunderstood, Steph. I thought you meant No, no. Actually, that first answer is perfect as well because I'm pretty sure <laughs> yeah. there's women out there who have had a baby, had surgery, and went, oh, actually, oh. so that's great. No worries. So it's like that first answer was great. No, now give me the answer that I asked, <laughs> the question I asked. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, it, the, there's no real, as soon as you want to, right? as soon as your body has recovered, and you know that's going to be at least 12 or 18 months before your body has recovered from having a baby, mm-hmm. you've got pelvic organ prolapse, there's no benefit waiting any longer than that 18 months. So, so okay. again, there's no spe- specific number of months, but, but uh, it's the same... It's the same answer to I've had a baby without prolapse. How long should I wait? There's, there's no, uh, it's basically when your body recovers, your body will suffer whether you've got prolapse or not. If you have babies too closely together, it won't okay. recover as quickly after that. So at least 18 months, but you know, two years would be even better. Okay. Yeah, that's great. That makes total sense. And it feels like it's in line with what I have seen or read out there as well. Let's just finish up with research. So we are all banging the drum. We feel like we're banging the drum really loud about pelvic organ prolapse as patient advocates. Mm. But to who exactly do we need to talk to commission research? Because we're finding statistics that medical, especially in women's health, less than 1% of research dollars from the Mm. government goes towards us. Who do we need to talk to to get more research so that we do have statistics and um, data to rely on about prolapse and relapse and, and prevention and risk factors? Like, where do we go? Yeah. And I'm not sure I'm going to be able to give you a good answer to that. I, I don't feel, I may be wrong here, but I don't feel it's worthwhile going to some governmental body, federal government um, body, to say, look, um, we need more money for research. It's, it's terrible. That it's 1% of research, a dollar. It shouldn't have it. it. You need to find the researchers who want that money as well. Okay. So I think, and let me get back to you with this if you like, Steph, but I think the answer is more encouraging people to do the research. And, and, okay. and then if, 
if so people are doing PhDs, for instance, and they, they'll need to have some financial payment for them. And you, you, that's the first step is getting people who want to do the research, then to go to government and say, we've got these 12 people here, they all want to do research, why don't you support them? I think that's the way in. I'm not 100% certain with that answer, to be honest with you, but I I think it is. <laughs> yeah, that's a great answer. I think that, I mean, it's really logical. That makes sense because I don't even think a lot of PhD students or, or people in general realize the stats are one in two, like a 50% of women have prolapse because we have that secrecy and taboo of not being able to talk yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, we want to change that. But that, I mean, that, 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 that gives me actionable steps. So that was a great answer because I'm going to go find some researchers. Any researchers <laughs> listening today, look out. I am coming for you. <laughs> great. No, that's fine. I'll help you there because I, I, I'm uh, attached to the University of New South Wales. I've got an academic position there. So I'm in contact with people all the time who are wondering Brilliant. about projects for their, uh, for their PhDs and other researchers as well. Amazing. I literally can hand you half of the female population on a platter. (laughs) (laughs) I think think that's true. A lot of the papers that we do read, the sample size is so small and the outcomes are therefore very wishy-washy. Oh, it could be this, but it might be that. The sample size was too small. So, you know, I think that you're right the other the other issue is people who want to publish papers and and want to get the the kudos from that or or genuinely want to help the mankind the the one that the most tempting sort of research to do is where you can get an answer within two or three or four years and to get an answer for a new technique to prevent or treat prolapse incontinence that you're going to have to look at 10 years and you know that for people's careers that they don't want to have to wait 10 years before they become famous no. and become a professor now you know they 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 want to so the the research which is which people tend to focus on uh, is that gives them a, a short-term hit if you like and and get okay. an answer and and because as we said what makes prolapse success part of its longevity that's what steers many people away from not just prolapse surgery but other forms of you know long-term disease as well yeah, yeah it's complicated i think yeah. that we can definitely feel an inertia. There is there is movement, which is great. To keep going with that is is going to be our challenge, but we're up for it. And yeah. I love that we have connected today. Thank you so much for all of your insight. It has been amazing. I just am a little bit gobsmacked with just how amazing and easy it is to talk to you because it, it feels like from a mum's perspective to have access to someone with your knowledge is expensive. It's very time consuming and almost impossible because I think I've actually called your rooms and your books are closed for two years because you're so busy. <laughs> Not quite two years, but it's me. It's into next year now. That that is right. So uh, you know, that's the problem. We need more people with those with that with that interest in in pelvic floor so that so that we're not as burdened as we as we are. Yeah. So I know that everyone listening will be as, just as grateful as I am for your time today. How can we now go and support you and what you're doing in Nepal? Oh, so the best thing would be with what you started with, Steph, which is the book. And I'm not, I'm a hopeless salesman. I'm not going to be able to give my sales pitch very well, but every single cent um, from the profits from the book, which is the, the publisher's not taking royalties anymore now. So it's everything other than the printing of the book goes to build our hospital. So the best thing you could do is, is to buy a book or buy more than one, get, get one for a friend for, you know, for, um, for Mother's Day or for Christmas or the birthday as well. It, it does two things. It, it raises funds for what we're doing, of course, but it, it creates awareness. And I, I know that's what you're doing with your, with your podcast, Steph. So reading the book um, increases awareness. 
I'll help you sell it because I've read it. And as a person who leads with prolapse, it's like, as I said before, I was, I was, had tears running down my face, but because it tells beautiful stories, it's not just about one prolapse. It's not just about you as an amazing surgeon. It's your team of volunteers that go with you. It's the people you meet. It's the educators and everyone who you meet. I'm, I really want to just come to Nepal, by the way, <laughs> I'll, I'll volunteer just to come and just get coffees or something. I don't know. Perfect. Just don't make me walk too far because of my prolapse, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Um, <laughs> you're very welcome to come at any stage, Steph. Um, yeah. I'll see you on the 22nd if you like. That <laughs> um, um, People can't walk into most bookstores and get it. At, at the moment, it's a very limited bookstores. You can get it on Amazon and other online bookstores. But the best way to get the book is to, to, to stop any royalties going to any, any, anyone else. Third party. through our website. So Perfect. get on our website. It's the other thing I'd, I'd plug. Yeah, definitely. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to put a direct link in the show notes. So if you're listening right now and you don't want to have to Google and find the book, I'm going to put a direct link where you can go on, have a look and buy the book. And did I hear right that there's also an audio book version coming oh, soon? <laughs> I've, I've been going home at the night and all my spare time, not, uh, and, and trying to narrate the book. And I'm sure it's nothing like your narration, but <laughs> trying to do all the different accents of the different characters has been a real challenge. Um, yes, that's out there. The first part, we've divided the book into three. And that first part's out there now on Audible and other other website, audiobook websites. And uh, yeah, please get that one as well. And, and uh, apologies in advance for the accents. I did the best I could. Not at all. I just know that people who are listening to this interview going, oh, wow, that, that voice is very easy to listen to. They can <laughs> also listen. And a lot of mums just like to pop the earphones in and listen to an yeah. audiobook as well. So yeah. thank you, you so should, much. You should hear it with a Nepalese accent. It's... <laughs> it's <laughs> It's nothing like it. <laughs> I'm going to stop you talking because you're going to talk yourself out of book sales here. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> Thank you for your time and your knowledge and just your overall amazing human beingness, which isn't even a word. But thanks. Thanks again, Ray. Uh, well, thank you, Steph, and, and you know, from, from one humanitarian to another, I guess. And, and uh, thank you again for the, the really amazing stuff that you're doing. I'm curious to know that if after this episode in particular, how much it helped you. I feel like every episode I'm like, oh, that's amazing and that's gold and I didn't know that. This one in particular, I had a real shift and in a positive way because while I wanted to go and meet with him and say, hey, can you fix my prolapse, to hear that he currently does not believe that there is a surgery to fix avulsions was also a little bit of a relief, I guess, because I've been on this journey for years and I feel like I've worked super hard to find solutions to everything, to every aspect of life of prolapse. I feel like I've done a good job now. If he's saying that there's not currently any surgeries available here in Australia, he's not sure of overseas, very unlikely, then I'm like, okay, I'm doing a good job. Because if anyone is going to find out if there's something available, I want this brave mama community to be the first to know when there is something that can be promising to change our lives. Look, I know we are still here. We are surviving. We are even thriving in aspects of our life. And I do talk about this in our new book because even though there is no quick fix to, to my prolapse, there are a million and one other ways to live and feel good with who you are. 
Okay, ladies, you know that this show has a really strong focus on prolapse prevention. So looking after your pelvic floor should absolutely start before you even think about becoming a parent. Did you know that the Continence Foundation has a pelvic floor health booklet? It can be for expectant or new mums and you can download it for free from www.continence.org.au or you can call the National Continence Helpline on 1-800-33-00-66 and they will give you free and confidential advice. We want to thank the Continence Foundation for bringing you this episode today and until next time, bye for now. Mama